0: All right, so uh, tonight we are going to be diving into the book of Jonah and then we're going to be using scripture to answer the most important question a human being could ever ask. It's the most important question that a human being ever asks. It goes, it dates way back to the beginning of time, which is what must I do to be saved? This is the question that all of us as mortals who understand we are currently wrapped in a mortal coil, we're asking a question about what happens after this. Jesus has asked this on many occasions. It's happened to people in the Old Testament. It's the first thing that Peter is asked after Jesus ascends back into heaven. John the Baptist in in the book of John, over and over again in scripture and even to today. And the irony of ironies is although our culture has changed and technology has changed and demographics have changed and cultures and and, and even the way that we're able to transverse places has changed, this book is without update for thousands of years. And so the answer then is the answer now. What must I do to be saved And maybe this week, you walked into this week thinking, well, there might be a God, but really I don't have any interplay with him. I don't have any interface with God, and I don't plan on having any interplay or interface with God. I don't talk to him. He doesn't talk to me. And like ships passing in the night, I'll live my life, and he can deal with the religious people except we talked about the idea that every one of us is religious. We all serve something. The question isn't, do you have a master? The question is, does your master have the power to make dead things live? Because listen, friend, that is what you will be a lot sooner than you know. And as I can tell you directly from my experience, if you think, don't worry, I'll answer that question when I'm 65, I can tell you from firsthand experience, watching it play out in my own life with my wife, that you're gambling on borrowed time tonight. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. The book of James says your life is like a vapor in the wind, here today and gone tomorrow. Which means you should feel a sense of emergency in your heart to answer the question, what are you going to do with this Jesus character? And the Bible really only gives us two options, not a third option. You can't be kind of pregnant. You either crown him as Lord of all or you crucify him as a heretic, but you can't do anything else. He is the most offensive. He is the most bifurcating. He is the most polarizing figure in all of humanity. We have historical records of who he is and who he was and what he did and that he died and that many people, even 500 at once, saw him after he was raised to life. You have to do something with that. And if you don't want to do anything with that, you still have to answer the question, what are we doing here right now? When a Middle Eastern carpenter decided to spend three years giving a radical message and you and I are talking about him right now. 2,000 years later, what do you do with Jesus? And you only have two options. Like I said before, you either crown him as Lord and King of your life and universe, or you need to get rid of him and reject him and basically kill him as a heretic. Someone that, that, that what they did on the cross and all of their work, it's, it's irrelevant to you. And you deny him. But like I said, at the beginning of the weekend, I'm gonna tell you hard truth and I want you to make an informed decision and for a lot of you, I'm, I'm going to ask you to make it tonight. Which tonight, there's not something super special about February 13th. Is that what the day is? I don't know what it is. Oh, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Perfect. Yes. Love. Okay. There's nothing unique about February 13th. There's nothing special about Hume Lake, we might argue because we go like, oh yeah, you, you, a, lot of, a lot of us have had special experiences at Hume Lake, but God isn't like more here. It's not like, well, we're higher and God lives in heaven. So it's like, God's like, oh, you guys are so close. That's not the way that this works at all. The only thing that's changed between you and whatever city you come from is you've slowed down and you've focused and you've allowed the noise of life to subside so that the really permeating questions of your soul can be raised. That's the only difference. And you'll find in your life, whenever you're quiet, whenever you still your heart, whenever you get away from the noise, you're gonna find that God shows up again, but I've got, it's kind of ironic, he's omnipresent. He doesn't show up then, you just take note of him then. So what do you do with Jesus? We start in the book of Jonah. Jonah is, it, it's just a goofy story, and tomorrow we'll read the rest of it, and its, the, it, it's it ends as weirdly as it starts and as weirdly as the <laughs> middle of it is. It's just one goofy story. Here's what it says. Jonah chapter 3. Okay, so the end of chapter 2, we saw Jonah... First of all, he had two ships, right? One's going this way, one's going that way. He chose to go against what God wanted to do. He chooses rebellion. And as you'll learn in your life, rebellion with God always equals pain. But not pain gratuitously, not pain because God's going to really get you. It's pain because life without Christ, life without Jesus, life rebelling against God, who has created the human condition, will never go well for you. He knows what's best. The best life you can possibly live is inside the will of God. I didn't say the safest life. I didn't say the easiest life. But we judge everything by its ability to carry out the task that it was designed for. Am I right? If you've got a cell phone and you use it to beat ants on pavement, will it will it will your cell phone kill ants? Yes. Yeah. It will. And if you shatter your screen and you ruin your brand new iPhone to kill ants, did you technically accomplish a task that you had in store? Yes. Yeah. Is that what iPhones were built for? No. No. So you've taken something whose value was so great and you've diminished it to something that could be accomplished by a fly swatter or a shoe or my three-year-old's thumb. And in the same way, the Bible kind of cries out and it says, if you're not living your life in response to who Jesus is, you are taking this most valuable, perfect breath that God has given you and you're wasting it. We judge things on their ability to fulfill what they were created for. And so Jonah says, well, I know what you want me to do, but this is what I want to do. And we all have the same option. Am I going to do what God wants for my life or am I going to do what I want for my life, and in the free agency of God, who's created us as free creatures, he's given us full permission to say, I want to go this way, I choose to go this way. He also allows us to reject him, to spit in the face of the Almighty and say, I don't want you. That's the grace and mercy that he's given us as free agents to accomplish. Jonah rejects. Big fish, num num num, swallows him up. He's in the belly of a Well, Now when you say belly of a fish, um, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of really bad representations of this in, like, cartoons and stuff. He wasn't in some sort of, like, studio apartment in San Francisco, you know? He wasn't like, it's cramped in here, but at least I've got a kitchen. Um, think about a, a fish you're like moving through the bowels and the intestines, and you're probably in bile, which is acidic to the skin. And in some parts, I'm guessing there's parts of your body that are starting to to be broken down by that bile. Jonah isn't comfortable, right? Like the VeggieTales version of of the cucumber sitting in the whale like, well, look, I think I'll do a portico, you know? Or like, I think we should have breakfast nook in the corner of the belly's whale the whale's belly, the belly's <laughs> whale. <laughs> Talking is hard, okay? Um, it wasn't. And so this, this, this man finds himself in a position where he's rebelled against God, and then it says God in his mercy provided a fish and swallowed him. And we talked tonight too how that gets kind of upsetting for our minds to go, what, who is this God? He's definitely not easily understood. Right? And, and the thing that's really unique about God is the more that you know about him, the more questions you have. And while our God can be known truly, he's never going to be known fully because he's, well, infinite. But instead of taking a culturally devised version of who God is, or the boyfriend God, or the on-demand God, or the, the cosmic genie, or any of these other false versions of him, the bodyguard he prevents you from all harm and suffering, you were challenged to get rid of those things and to replace it with the truth of who Jesus is. And tonight, you're going to get a good picture to replace what was taken last night. Fill the vacuum. He finds himself in the middle of the depths of the belly of the whale and he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord, verse 10, spits him out onto dry land. Well, the fish does, but the fish tells, the God tells the fish too. And I don't know how he told him to. You know, does God speak fish? Did he? I'm not sure that's a thing. Let's go to the Bible and see what it says, okay. I know people are so passionate about it. I wonder if God speaks fish fish. He does. I know it. I know it. Here we go. I'm I'm guessing that's probably not what happened. Okay, it says then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So here's a second chance. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give to you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Not where he wanted to go. Remember, this is in Turkey. He was on his route to Spain. Now he's going back to Turkey. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to walk through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming this. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, so he starts a clock, okay? Here's your countdown, friends. Y'all are gonna die in 40 days. He feels pretty good about that. He's seen the backyard gnomes rebel and party and go against what God says for a long time. He knows their stories. The Jewish people were very familiar with, with the atrocities of Ninevites. If you look in, back in, in ancient history, they know they're bad people. So he starts the countdown clock. He expects the backyard gnomes to do what they always do, which is party and hang out, wear hula skirts, all those other kind of things. Okay, That's just what they're going to do. Not that any of those things like wearing Holy skirts, it's not sinful, but I'm trying to attach the theme to the Bible. So give me a little grace here. So the idea is, I've seen what they do, they're not going to repent. So Jonah feels very comfortable. Here's what he says. The Ninevites believed God. Okay, if you have your a pen or pencil or highlighter, I want you to circle, highlight, underlies that phrase. The Ninevites believed God, Okay. Now, when the Bible says that someone believes in God or someone believed God, it doesn't simply mean that given a Scantron, they would select, I think he exists. Believing in God is not like believing, like how many of you guys are, are convinced that kale's probably good for you? Right? Kale, you ever had kale before? <laughs> People from Bakersfield, what do you mean? Is it like chili? Okay. Low blow, Hilkin. I'm sorry. (laughs) Right? We're convinced. Right? All of us know that reading is probably better for your brain than binge watching the next, like, true crime series on Netflix. We get that, right? Like, how many of y'all have read a um, a nonfiction novel cover to cover in the last 30 days? Nerds. Okay, so, um, no, maybe you're not nerds, but I'm a nerd too, but I still haven't done that. How many of y'all have seen Tiger King 2? Tiger King on Netflix? Remember the guy, and he's got the tigers? Joe Exotic, that's right, good. My point is, right. Carol Baskin, that's right. My point is that we might all know intellectually that it's better for us to sit down and read a book than it is for us to binge a TV show. We might realize that kale is better for us than cotton candy. But that, that if, we, if that belief doesn't convict and change who we are, the Bible would never use the word believe. When the Bible used the word believe, it means it. the the belief itself was so foundationally convicting that it changed who you were. So Genesis 15 verse six says this, Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. That wasn't Abraham going, all right, yes. No, that meant Abraham was going, I'm gonna do whatever you say, I'm gonna go to a land that I don't understand, I'm gonna do whatever you need me to do. That's what belief always means in scripture. It always means I give all of myself, I'm convicted of the truth of this. So, the Ninevites believed God, and we're going to watch the way that they respond. Here's what it says. A fast was proclaimed, so everyone, they felt so convicted of what happened, they stopped eating. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, (laughs) which is like a way of showing sorrow or mourning. So they were mourning their sinful nature. They were saying, we're so terrible, we're going to wear sackcloth, Okay. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal rose, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued this proclamation. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may still relent and with compassion turned from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So we see a people who a lot of us would go, well, the Ninevites were too far gone. The Ninevites were known for when they would conquer foreign territory, they would skin their victims and then hang them on the city walls so that no one ever messed with them. They're gross people. They're weird. They're messed up. They're not okay. And some of you sit in here and you think, hey, this, this is a, I love this whole church thing, but some of you think to yourself, but if, Chris, if you knew what I did, or if you know who I am, <coughs> if you know who I hung out with, if you know where I was last weekend, if you knew these things, you would know fully well, I am outside the grip of God's grace. I'm not, I don't qualify for what you're talking about because of who I am. Y'all, the Ninevites received grace from God for all that they had done. I'm guessing most of you haven't skinned anyone in the last two or three weeks, right? Hopefully, never, right? <laughs> you mean like skin a fox? No, Bakersfield, not even foxes. I mean a human being, okay? When I was a kid, I used to get, I used to get $20 for every coyote I killed out in the almond fields in Bakersfield. That's how country I am. Okay, that's the in here or there. So, we asked this question then. In response to that, The people of Nineveh had a prophet come to them, and as the prophet approached them, he said, I speak on behalf of the Lord, and here's what the Lord wants from you. He has seen you in your sin, and in his grace, he's called you to repentance. Repentance is a fancy word that means he's called you to turn and go the other direction. Where's Max? right there. Come on, man. Go get in your spot, Max. Go get in your spot. Actually, Max, do you come here? The balcony can't see you, so I'm going to have you go over on that side of the stage, and I'm going to come on this side of the stage. What do you think about that? Max is my man. So we still have this question. There's a massive gap between the brokenness of us as people the sin that we've committed, the idols that we've worshipped, the guilt on our conscience, the stain of our sin on our soul, and his holy perfection. And if you finish your life in this state, sinful, broken, messed up, stained, rebellious, unrepentant, if in this position you die, the Bible makes it clear that you spend forever and eternity apart from God. And you might go, I don't really like God anyway. I'm not into this whole God thing. Why is it such a bad thing? Let me help tease this out for you. The Bible makes it very clear. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Okay? Would you think that comfort is a good and perfect gift? Yeah, good. Would you think family is a good and perfect gift? Uh, hope is a good and perfect gift? Uh, gentleness is a good and perfect gift? Would you think that um, being pain-free is a good and perfect gift? Would you th- All those things are good and perfect gifts. Because God resides as um, um, omnipresent creator of the universe, whether you believe in God or not, he has still given you something called common graces. That means whether you're an atheist or you're a devout Christian and you both eat a good meal, you can both enjoy it the same way. That's a gift from God. That gift from God, his loving kindness, everything in, in, in his creation that is good is actually God reaching out with an olive branch to the unrepentant heart saying, I want to draw you in with my loving kindness. I want you to understand how good I am. I want you to understand how how much I love you. I want you to understand how much I want you to follow me. But we take that for granted. See, you see, in a godless world that we had right now, imagine every bit of who God was, every good and perfect gift, every comfort you'd ever experienced being taken away. If they're all borrowed from God, imagine a world where God was totally absent. You would have no hope. You would have no pain-free attitudes. You would, all of our mental capacities would be completely imploded at all times. We would not know gentleness. We would not know peace. We would only know chaos. We would only know darkness. Light is a good and perfect gift from God. Technological advancements are a good and perfect gift from God. Forgiveness. We wouldn't have forgiveness. We would constantly be at war with one another. We would be in darkness. We would be hurting. We would be broken. And we would be ridiculously, ridiculously in the middle of torment at all times. Forever. And so, what does Scripture describe hell as? For those of us on planet Earth who say, I want nothing to do with God, God actually answers our request and says, that's fine, you will have nothing to do with me forever. That's all that hell is. In the absence of who God is, the vac- what fills the vacuum where God was is every bit of pain and hurt and misunderstanding and torment and torture that you could possibly imagine. Because the only reason you're not experiencing all that right now is because of God's loving kindness to you. He sustains us at all moments. And so if if our earth were suddenly void of God, we would experience literally hell on earth. And so if we finish our life in this position saying, I have not surrendered to God, I have not submitted to God, I don't want anything to do with God, then God almost answers that prayer request and says, I won't make you suffer an eternity with me. I'll let you go be by yourself. And the scriptures talk about hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and darkness where the fire, never come, where the fire is never put out. It's, it's tormentious at all times. Why? Because God has removed himself from that place. And so those of us who reject the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done, we are permanently positioned here forever. But see, this is how we are born. We're born in rebellion against God. And so without some kind of a solution, you have to understand, this person spends eternity in hell away from God. This person, same fate. This person, same fate. This person, same fate. And if this person is like the nicest person you've ever known, Right here. Never do anything. It's like Mother Teresa right here. Without Jesus, same fate as that guy over there. Same fate. Same fate. Same fate. No heaven. All hell. All hell. No heaven. All hell. It's this way all the way until you are categorically perfect in every way. But friend, you can't even do that. All you had to do was be born and you've already screwed up your chances of making it there by yourself. And most of you in this room were born. (laughs) <laughs> biology, <laughs> and don't get it twisted, like we talked to the night, ever since then, we've just made it worse, so we got a question then, if I can't get there on my own, and some of you guys, especially us pious Pharisees who grew up in the church, we go, well, I do bad stuff, but I also do really good stuff, so in our minds, we're like, I went on a missions trip, getting a little bit closer. I gave all my money to poor kids, getting a little bit closer instead of playing football this year, I would became a monk. i don 't watch SpongeBob because sometimes he 's naked it 's bad for my brain. I make sure that I only watch Jesus movies, even though they 're pretty much cringy. I just watch the Chosen series, <laughs> right And so when we think about when we think about Jesus' crucifixion, we can in our heads, religious kids, talking to you, go, yeah, when Jesus died, I was guilty for like, maybe like one or two of the beatings he got, but I'm not like the, the, the bad kids. They're responsible for like the nails and the feet and the hands. That's their responsibility. I, I was just like a cold shiver on Jesus' back. I, that's all, that's my only responsibility in the crucifixion of Jesus. No, we are fully culpable. You are fully guilty. And so what are we going to do about that? We're over here. He's over here. And every step I take closer, I prop myself up and I try to fix the problem that I've created. That's A, stupid, and B, pride. So if I need to be where he is in order for me to go to heaven, to be counted as perfect, then we need an external solution. The solution is not going to be found in yourself. You can't think your way there. You can't work your way there. You can't pray your way there. You can't worship enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't do any of that. You can't get a step closer to him. Can you have a seat on the edge of the stage? I'm going to use you again in a minute, but I don't want you to leave. Also, thank you for being such a great candidate for this. Appreciate that. And so we're going to finish chapel time by just answering the most profound, simple, and in many ways, pressing question in most of our hearts. If we know that this is true, then what's the solution? What must I do to be saved? Is there actually a way for someone as messed up as me to be able to surrender their life to Jesus, knowing that when I die, I won't be over there cemented in that position, but I'll be over there in perfection, cemented in the position of worshiping God forever in his community with him. He restores heaven, he restores earth, and we spend forever in his perfect kingdom. How do I get from there to there? Or is it even possible? If you have your Bible, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm gonna ask you to pretend with me right now that I just finished chapel. And you were like, "We what? You didn't finish. You said you were gonna teach us the gospel, the good news of how we can be saved from the sin that we live in, the sin that we were born in. Let's say, for some reason, I just finished chapel, and then you found me afterwards, and you're like, Chris, 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 Chris. Hey, I got a question. What must I do to be saved? And I would go, oh, I forgot. I knew it was gospel night. I knew I was forgetting something. I forgot that I had the whole gospel, okay? I would sit you down. So right now I want you to pretend. I want you to pretend it's you and me and we're sitting out in the okay chalet. Might be a whole bunch of people playing cornhole around us and doing whatever they're doing, but we're just having a one-on-one conversation. Okay, it's just you and me. So I want to you. I'm gonna talk you through this. I'm going to do it. I'm gonna try to do it as succinctly as comprehensively, as simply, and with as much clarity as I can possibly muster because I want you to make an educated decision at the end of this, okay? I'm gonna have the the passages on the screen. I'm gonna encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open up here because this is the way that people for thousands of years have come to saving faith in Jesus so that their divine appointment with God someday when they see him face to face goes from Get out of here, you wicked, lazy person. I do not know you or where you've come from, away with you, to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and your appointment instead sounds like, well done, good and faithful servant. Come in and find rest. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans is a book that a guy named Paul wrote. Time magazine, a few years back, penned him as the second most influential man who's ever lived because he took the Gospel of Jesus, and he essentially created a Judeo-Christian morality from it, and he planted churches, and his missionary journeys were the seed of Christendom around the world. It's literally why you and I are sitting here today. And Paul knew that when he went to Rome, he was gonna be killed. So he had to write a book to Rome, knowing that it was a big capital city, but that if he went there, they would kill him, so he had to write the Gospel out to them. That's why Romans is used so often to bring people to faith and to bring them to salvation. Salvation means to be saved from your sin and with Jesus forever and eternity. Paul uses Romans as a sort of salvation text for the people of Rome. That's why we're going to use it here, because it's simple, it's succinct, and it's not my words, it's scripture. Romans chapter 1 says this You said, How, What must they do to be saved? I would say it begins with understanding the most fundamental truths of Christianity. And it starts like this. Romans chapter one, beginning at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them or because God has made it plain to them. Okay? In verse 20, it says this. For, his, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So Paul writes in a very Pauline way. He's an intellectual. He's very smart. So sometimes you've got to break down what he's saying in simple terms. Let me put it for you in simple terms. Paul is saying that if you think that God hasn't shown his face to the world, Paul is saying that's incorrect. If you ask God, have you revealed yourself simply, completely, and clearly to the world, God would say, of course I have. And he would use you as an example, right? He would say, of course, right? Let's say you're in in one of these cabins at night. Let's say you and your friends, you're going to go hang out. And you're like, we're going to rent a cabin at Hume Lake. But it's in the off season. There's no one else up on the hill. And you rent one of like the big spooky cabins out. Are there spooky cabins? I don't know. But you rent this like big spooky cabin out in the back parts of camps, back part of camp. And you're like, oh, this is going to be so fun. We're going to go there. We're going to tell ghost stories. It's going to be so sweet. I don't know. I I don't know your life, but let's pretend this is what you did. You get up there first. You get to the cabin first, and the sun's starting to go down, and you're kind of creeped out, right? And you're eating a bowl of Alphabet cereal. And you know Alphabet cereal? It's got, like, all the different letters, and it's kind of neat. Uh, You're like, I I ate a Y. Uh, That's Alphabet cereal. And let's say as you're eating Alphabet cereal, you get a text from your friends, and they say, hey, man, we're not going to make it up tonight. And so you're going to be in this all by yourself, or you think you're all by yourself. So, you are eating your alphabet cereal, and as you're eating it, something happens. You turn to see what it is. It's just a bear, but you don't know what it is. So, you like turn really quickly. There's a bear outside. And you smack the alphabet cereal box, and the letters go everywhere. And you're like, now i got to clean this up. So, you go out of the room. You go back into the back room where there's a vacuum. You get it, and you bring it back out. And as you go back to it, you realize that the alphabet cereal now says... I wouldn't go to sleep if I were you. <laughs> I'd be like, girl, I am, I am out of here, right? I would literally be like, Jesus Christ, bring your kingdom quickly. Help me, Holy Spirit. I don't want to say bad words, but I don't know any good ones right now. There's not a person in the room that would go, that's so silly. <laughs> you, know how, you know how random it is that I bumped that box that it would spell those letters like that accidentally? No one would. Every person in here would not sleep, right? Unless you're like really into true crime, you're like, come get me, right? <laughs> or you're like, Kevin McAllister, you sell like booby traps in your house? You're, uh, you thirsty for more? You, like, break ornaments and put them on the ground, like a big weirdo. Like, an adult's not going to go, okay. <laughs> anyway, anyone who sees that just goes, this is the scariest thing I've ever been through in my life, right? I was, I, I, literally, I was on a hike with Peyton last time we came, like, we went out into... We waded through the water behind one of my buddy's houses out here. We were looking for bullfrogs, and so it was me, Peyton, Harper, and Brady, my three older ones. Um, It's actually, Paige was actually at uh, the hospital, at the one that was closer at that point, with Leo. Leo ended up getting diagnosed with something called acute onset cerebralitis, which is a really rare medical condition where a response to infection is the kid is, becomes basically a quadriplegic for a season. There's like some kind of swelling in the brain that causes it. He became unresponsive and everything. And then three days later, he was back to himself. But for two days, we literally thought we're have a we going to raise a paraplegic son or quadriplegic son. We had no idea what was happening. I didn't finish the story last night. I want to tell you that. He's fine. He's great. He's a tornado. He wrecks everything. But I love him so much and he's fine. So, um, but we're, we're out there and uh, someone had carved, you know, like a heart and then like initials in the side of a tree. And... As we're walking on the thing, and Peyton, Peyton, at the time he was six, he says, "Who wrote that?" And I said, "It's, it's." it's I didn't tell him this because this is way too. But in my head, I thought this is really profound that you saw something as simple as two letters with a heart around it, and you naturally asked, "What was the first question?" what the first word of the question he asked. Who? Do you see how, Do you see how instantly we're triggered by something as simple but yet complex as that? Something that looks designed, something that has complexity to it. We simply go, "Who did that?" Isn't that funny? And that's a heart around a C and an R. That's all it was. And my son goes, who was here? My son did not go, what made that? Like, imagine if you and I stumbled upon this building, and as we were walking by, you're like, hey, Chris, is this the chapel? And I was like, yeah, it is. What do you think made this chapel? And you were like, I don't know, probably like builders, architecture, an architect, and like a building company. I said, no, 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 you didn't hear my question what made this chapel? And you're like, what are you talking about? I was like, here's my theory. My theory is there was like this hurricane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 go with me. There was like, there was like this hurricane that happened and then there was some kind of feud between the, like, the, the beavers and the otters and the beavers started chopping down trees. And they started like... <laughs> And then the otters were like, you get out of here. So they started putting up these barriers to them. And then the LED screens, I, they might look like, but I think if you really think about the way that bugs interact with one another, and stars, stop, stop, stars, stars came down, and he, right? And, and I gave you a strictly naturalistic explanation of how this chapel got here. There's a point at which you would go, bro, you're high, I'm leaving, right? You would just go, no, right? Like even if we went on the walk together and I showed you C.R. with a heart around it and I tried to make the argument that that was an accident and not on purpose, you would count me off as a lunatic. And yet, the complexity and the design that is so firmly fastened in nature, just for you to be able to see me right now with the cones and the rods and the pupil and all those things, if any of those are put into your head and into your skull without it being fully formed, they don't, your eyes don't work. You have microorganisms in you that can't be deduced any further down without being completely, uh, it, it, they wouldn't do anything. They'd be inoperable and yet they come fully functional so that you can operate in your life right now. And we see all these things and we look at, if, if you look at like the human brain and you go, I think this was an accident, but you look at this chapel and you go, this must have been on purpose or a seat it over the heart and say, this must have been on purpose. You have committed what's called a taxicab fallacy. Taxi cab fallacy says, I think all this was an accident because it's complex. But the complexity we see right here was probably an accident. That's the gap fallacy. You get in and out of the cab to make your point whenever you feel like it, and it becomes convenient for you. It's a logical fallacy. It doesn't work. And if we observe complexity, if we look at alphabets and it says don't go to sleep and you respond to it, in the same way when you look at the human condition, the blood, the the uniformitarian movement of the world, that our earth is planted on 23.5 degrees on its axis and it spins to give us seasons and the tides and the way that the moon is set just perfectly that if it was any closer and any further away, the tides would overwhelm us or they'd underwhelm us to a point that wouldn't create proper tides. And that's what's needed. We have to revolve around a red dwarf G2 star in order for us to have liquid water and carbon-based mechanisms and the the right elemental table for us to have carbon-based life on planet earth and that's not even going in to the anthropic principles of which there's 122 at least those are all the little dials necessary for us to have life on planet earth including but not limited to the force of gravity on us which if it was off in one parts in one times 10 to the 170th power there would be no life anywhere in the universe that is like taking a ruler that expands the whole universe a ruler that expands the whole universe and putting inch marks on that ruler. And the force of gravity is set so perfectly that it's set to one inch on that whole ruler. And if you moved it one inch to the right or one inch to the left, there'd be no life anywhere in the universe. That's how how fundamentally complex our universe is. So to look at a tree and go, who was here? And then to look at our universe and say, what made this, in my opinion, and might be yours too, You've committed a fallacy. Complexity means a who, but this complexity could be a what. And so Paul says this: I've shown you from the creation of the world my invisible qualities, specifically my divine nature. People aren't without excuse. You can't just go, "Well, I don't. I've never run into the idea that there could be a God." That's Romans 1.20. So the, the, the gospel message starts with this very simply: There is a God. Romans chapter 3 says this. Maybe you go, there's a God, but who, what, what, does that make, what difference does that make to me? Great, there's a God out there. Well, God has a perfect plan for your life. God has a way that he created you, and we're all judged by the way that we line up to what we are created for, like an iPhone would, like a fly swatter would, like anything else would. And we, in our rebellion and our sin, we looked at God, who is the king, and when we live life by our own rules, which is what we call sin, God gave us a perfect set of laws and every day you and I say, God, I see your rules. King, I see your rules, but I will do things on my own. That's called treason. To look at the king and his rules and say, I am going to rebel against them is to commit treason on a cosmic scale. So don't think sin is like little white lies or just little insignificant events or maybe God could overlook them. It's not about the sin themselves. It's that every sin says, I know your law. I just usurp it. I understand your law. And whether it's murder or it's cheating on a spelling test or whatever it is, it's all fundamentally the same. I know what God wants from me here. I'm going to do the opposite. Which isn't to say that if you cheat on your spelling test, you might as well murder because it's all the same to God. No. There are clearly different consequences from God here on earth to both those things, cultural consequences, civil consequences, relational consequences, but at their core, they're both rebellion, and they both will cost you eternal life. So it says there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. So in case you're sitting here going, well, There is a a God up there. There's a God all around us. And I think He's cool with me. I think if you looked at my life, I'm better than most people. The Bible says, You're not good. No one's good. Not even one person is good. And if your mom says, You're a pretty good person, it doesn't matter. She's not good either. Anyone in your life is not good. I'm not good. You're not good. They're not good. Mother Teresa's not good. Paul's not good. There is only one that's good. In the book of Mark, Jesus sees this Pharisee, a Pharisee who thinks that he's perfect. The Pharisee looks at Jesus and says, and says, good teacher, what's Jesus' response? Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. So the Bible says, when I say good, don't think of it like the way we understand good. Like we, when we say someone's a good person, we mean nice, amicable, pleasant, right? We can use good in other ways too. If you throw a rock at my grandma from 100 yards away, was that a good throw? Yeah, that was a really good throw. But are you a good person? (laughs) No. So you might say, that was a good throw, but it wasn't a good throw. But it was like a good throw, but it wasn't like a good throw. You know what I mean? When the Bible says the word good, when the Bible says the word righteous, it's talking about something bigger. Whether you're condemned and separated or you're eternally perfect with God. There was no one right with God on their own, not even one. And you might go, okay, so I guess you could say in some ways there's a war going on between God and I, and I've created it because I've rebelled against him. So now what? What's the consequences of that war? Romans, next one, go ahead. Chapter six, verse 23. The wages, that's what you've earned, okay? If you work a job, you earn wages. The Bible is going to use this to help us understand. It's going to use this as an analogy, and it says, when you sin, you've also earned something. But what you've earned is death. Not temporary death. Not in the fact that one day you'll stop breathing, your heart's going to stop beating. It means eternal death. For the wages of sin is that your, fundament, is that your eternal position will be here. The wages of the rebellion that we've committed in our life will be that we will spend forever in this position. Apart from God, in hell forever. Well, that seems pretty bleak. You're like, I this was a gospel night. Gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which means the good news. How what kind of good news starts with there's a God, you're at war with him, he's gonna win, and you're gonna go to hell. Right? It's like this is an intense good news. <laughs> this is some of the worst news I've ever gotten. But if you don't understand how bad you're going to have it without Jesus and how absolutely and profoundly destined for hell we are without him, then the beauty of the gospel doesn't really set in the same way. See, at this point, all of your sins stacked against you, one day you're going to meet Jesus face to face. And if you're cemented in that position, he's going to simply say, show me the record of your sin. And you're going to roll it out. If you're here, You're going to take everything, every wrong thing you've ever done, starting from birth, which was also mutiny, and everything else that you've done, and you're going to hold it. This is every lie, every time you cheated, every time you stole, every time you had hate in your heart, every time you lusted, and every time you didn't do something that God wanted you to do as your king. And you're going to roll out this massive list of iniquity. And God's just going to look at the very first thing on the list and go, away from me. I do not know you. The guest list for heaven is one name long and it's not your name. Only perfect souls may be with me forever for I am a God of justice and the sin that you've committed must be punished. If God could look at our sin and go, not a big deal, then he wouldn't be a just judge. And God is perfect in, how's the song go? You are perfect in all of your ways. All of your ways. And when we think of that, we go like, you're perfectly loving. He's perfectly, he's he's perfectly beautiful. He's perfectly powerful. But there's some other thing. He's perfectly wrathful. He's perfectly just. So you can't just look at these great attributes and understand that even the attributes of of his wrath and his justice are still an extension of his love. God's wrath is poured out on people who look at his son, Jesus, and say, your death on the cross was in vain. It was pointless. And God's deep love for his son only has one response to people who say, the death of your beloved son was a mistake. A father's only proper response to someone who rejects something like that is to pour out your wrath. <clears throat> and so we look at the wages of sin his death and you're sitting in the courtroom with everything laid out against you and you got no hope. Here comes the biggest but in history, Romans 5 verse 8, you ready? But it just seems hopeless, right? You sit here and you go like, wait a minute, so what am I supposed to? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The theological depth of that last phrase, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You could spend the rest of your life chewing on that and you would never finish. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says in this position, God and his justice can't just go, all right, I'm over it. Get in here, guys. You're all going to heaven. Oh, I'm not really concerned about it anymore. This doesn't really need to be punished. We're just gonna let this one go. You can't do that. So then what are we supposed to do? I can't step forward. In my current state, uh, God can't come to me because in his justice, I will be annihilated immediately because he is so perfect and he is so just. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. Here's what happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus became man, he, Philippians chapter two, Being in very nature, God did not consider equality or his current stance something to be held on to. Jesus understanding what it would take, that in order for a wretched man to inherit a perfect kingdom, a perfect king would have to pay the price of a wretched man. So Jesus, in his love for you, Not y'all corporately, not y'all in that church, not y'all in the balcony. You, you, individually, the book of Psalms makes it clear. God knit you together in your mother's womb. Y'all never knitted before? It's not something you do flippantly, and you don't do it two at a time. You've never met someone who's like, hello. What are you doing? I'm knitting three beanies. No. When you watch it, there's the intricacy, and there's... God knit you together in your mother's womb. It says he knows every hair on your head. He knows you by name, even if you don't know him. So don't make the mistake in thinking that you're just one part of a great mass of human beings of which God corporately loves all of us. God demonstrated his own love for you. What's your name? Yeah. Karis. God demonstrated his love for you, Karis in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Not y'all corporate, you. So what did he do? You can't step any closer to God without pride and more sin coming into the picture, but Jesus could, Philippians 2, be found in very nature. God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he became obedient to a death, a traitor's death, even death on a cross. Jesus kenosis himself. That means he emptied himself. He became nothing. But then he lived the perfect life, which is the life that you and I were supposed to live. And do the math. It's transitive property of something. If the wages of sin is death, then the wages of perfection is good. So if you sin, you deserve hell forevermore. But if you live a perfect life, you deserve hell heaven forevermore. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came and he became incarnate. That means he put skin on. Why? Because that's who you are. He became who you are. And the task laid before you was to live a perfect life to be with him forever. Jesus said, I got it. And he walked 33 years on this earth, living perfectly, never stumbling in any way. He was absolutely perfect. But then guess what? He died the death of a wretched traitor that you and I deserved. But wait a minute. The wages of sin is death, but the wages of perfection is? So how could you kill Jesus? You see, that's why the grave spit him back out. That's why when he went into the tomb three days later, he came back holding his wages in hand, going, I didn't deserve to die. I was perfect. The wages of sin is death, but the wages of perfection is life, and I was perfect. So out of the grave, he comes holding freedom and grace and mercy and life eternal, and now he walks around to all of us, and he says, I've earned this for you. Would you like it? I've earned this for you in my life, my death, and my resurrection. Would you like to be part of my kingdom with me? This is the gospel. It's not us getting to God. It's God coming to us, putting on our skin, and then he put your number, he put your name on his chest and lived a perfect life. And then also, when he was crucified, he had your name on his chest still, and he took the punishment for your sins. That's how God could remain perfectly just and still allow me a sinner into his kingdom. He punished a righteous man so that an unrighteous man could be with him. God had to treat his son like a murderer to treat me a murderer like his son. God, Jesus, had to die the death of a traitor that me, a traitor could experience the life that he had won for me. The gospel is the great substitution. God in my place, me in his. And that substitution and that gift and that freedom and that mercy that Jesus grips is being extended to you tonight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do you do? Now you're sitting here and you understand the gap between you and God is infinitely long. You know that you can't step any closer. You know that all of the gold stars on your Sunday School Progress Report isn't gonna get you one inch closer to salvation. You've been in church, you've been around God, but you've never truly surrendered your life to him. And now you sit here and you've understood, oh, I get why submission is important. I get why surrender is important. I get why accepting Christ's work on my behalf is important because it moves me from an object of God's wrath to the position where Jesus is, an object of his love. You see, on the last day that I live on this planet Earth, and I die, and I get to heaven, and I meet God face to face for judgment, and he says, why should I let you in? Show me your sin. I'm going to go like this. And Jesus is going to go. And God is going to look at him and he's going to go, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter and find rest. And Jesus is going to go. Go ahead. You see, when I get to heaven, the judgment will not be on me. I will have my sins paid by Jesus. He will undergo the judgment that I deserved, and I will be found perfect. Why? Because a long time ago, I sat in the second row of this chapel, and I stood up, and I said, I believe that the work on the cross was, has paid the price for my sins, and I'm going to live the rest of my life in response to that. Well, then, friend, what must must we do to be saved? Romans 10 says this. To respond to this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, too, will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Go back one slide for me, Kayla. Thank you. Right there. There's really two parts to this. Neither of which you earned, Neither of which you worked out, neither of which have anything to do with you. It's just something that you're accepting that Jesus has won. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that word right there, Lord, is Adonai, it means king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you say, What must I do to be saved? Here it is, and it's simple, and it's got two parts to it. It's not what you do, it's what you respond to what has been done for you. And it's two parts. Number one, it's to say in your heart, God, I know that I'm a sinner, a wretched, messed up, terrible, murderous, genocidal, adulterous sinner. I've broken every part of your law. I've rebelled against you. But God, I believe that when you died on that cross and rose again from the dead, that you pinned my sins to that cross, and I accept your work on the cross of Calvary as punishment and as penance and as substitution for myself. And now, Lord, you are the King and Lord of my life. And the second part of that, that he is King and Lord of our life, is the only reasonable response because once we surrender to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now lives inside of us, and it's going to start making you new from the inside out. It's to say two things. I believe that your death paid the price of my sin and that your resurrection showed that you have the power to make dead things live and I believe it. What does the scripture mean when it says to believe something? It's so foundational that it changes everything. The Ninevites believed God. Abraham believed the Lord and it's saying you need to believe in God like that. And you might not understand everything on the first day. That's great. That's great. You might not totally get the intricacies and the idiosyncrasies of Christian theology, and that's okay. It's just to, in this chapel, even in this moment, to stand in the position of going, my life is a dumpster fire. I am sinful, broken, messed up, rebel against God, and I need an external help. Jesus, your work paid the price for my sins. And even though I'm gonna mess up every day and I'm gonna screw up and I'm gonna fall short, I'm gonna do dumb things, you will be the Lord and God of my life. And even when I go sideways, I want to reorient myself on who you are because that's the only re- proper response to grace like this. Thanks, buddy. You can go sit Appreciate you and all your help. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I know, I mean, I know there's someone out there who could have done this better or more clearly. That's the best, this is the best I got. With all the offense, with all of the ways of speaking to you like adults, with all the information I have, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't talk to you about hell. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't make, try to make it clear. If I didn't love you, I would do four sermons on um, head coverings in the Old Testament, right? Like if, but I do. I love you. And so I want you to hear the fullness of what I'm saying. And I want you to understand what both decisions mean, what what both responses mean. And I want you as adults to respond to it. Knowing full well that rejecting Jesus has meaning and accepting his work on the cross has meaning too. And I'm gonna ask you to respond. And here's how I'm gonna ask you to respond. In just a second, I'm gonna pray a prayer. That basically summarizes everything that I said earlier of what it means to believe in Jesus and to pronounce him as Lord of your life. At the end of that prayer, I'm going to ask you if it was your first time to ever receive what Christ has done in your life, to give him your sin, to ask him to be the substitution on judgment day, that you can stand perfect and blameless before Jesus. If it's your first time to ever say, I receive what you have done, I follow you now. At the end of the prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand up when I tell you to. Here's why I'm going to ask you to stand up. Because, friend, if you can't stand up in, full, in, in front of a room of mostly Christians, in front of a pastor who is Christian, in front of your counselors who are Christian, shoot, if we could baptize these walls, these walls would be Christian. <laughs> it seemed like Christian can't. Friend, if you can't stand here, you're not going to stand down the hill. Don't kid yourself. And secondly, it creates personal accountability. It lets us, as people who are already saved, understand I've got a new sister tonight, I've got a new brother tonight, I've got a new sister tonight. You, your father and my father are now the same. Your destiny and my destiny are the same. We're gonna be slow dancing up in heaven together someday just hanging out and eating chili and whatever we wanna do, right? I don't know, I've got chili on my mind. <laughs> That's what I'm asking you to, and, and it allows us then to hold you accountable, and it allows your youth pastors and your counselors to meet with you after this chapel and just for a second go, "Hey, just talk to me about why you stood." That's why. And so, I'm going to ask us to all pray together. And if given all the information, you go, "I get it," and I receive what He's done, I want to respond to this. Lord, be the Lord and Savior of my life. I give you my sin, I receive your perfection. I want you to pray with me right now in your hearts. You don't have to pray out loud. Pray with me. Lord, I know that you know me. I know that you built me. I know that you knit me together in my mother's womb. And I know that I've spent every day from then until now rebelling against you, even if not intentionally. But I know that the things that I've done, the words that I've said, the attitudes that I've possessed, the idols that I've worshipped, the intentions that I've had, the lusts of my flesh and everything has just been one big betrayal of who you are. I've committed treason on the highest scale, and I know know I'm I know I deserve your wrath. I know I deserve your punishment. But God, I believe wholeheartedly. That two thousand years ago, when Jesus went to that cross, that He paid the price for my sin, and tonight I want to surrender that over to you. I don't know why, you are willing to take my sin and give me eternal life. I don't get it, but I want it. And so tonight, I I confess my sin to you. I know that I've fallen short. I know that my life is messed up. I know that I'm a dumpster fire. I know that I keep sinning against you. I know I've done things my own way. But God, I'm asking you to forgive those things in my life. I believe that you died on the cross to take away those sins. I believe that you will then stand in judgment and you will pronounce me perfect because you live the righteous life in my place, a substitution. And God, even though I'm gonna mess up, I wanna commit tonight that because of what you've done for me, send your Holy Spirit into my heart and change the way that I think Make you, I want you to be Lord of my life and not myself. I surrender not just my sin to you, but also my whole life to you. From this day forth, even knowing that I'm gonna keep sinning and keep messing up, that from now on, I do that all under the grace of your forgiveness. I wanna know you as Father. I wanna be known as your son. I wanna be known as your daughter until I get to see you face to face and enter into your kingdom forever. Would you take my sin, receive my belief in who you are and what you've done for me? And God, you are God now and I am not. In name we pray, amen.